0: Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses 11 through 12. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. may be seated. Would you pray with me as we open God's word this morning? Lord, we ask today that as we open your word, as we desire to hear your voice and see your face, that we pray that you would uh, be here with us, that by your spirit we would know you and understand your love for us and the way in which you are at work as us in us as individuals and in your church we pray that you would do that work in our midst this morning as we read from this text in second thessalonians and consider uh, the way that it shapes our lives and draws us nearer to you be with us this morning lord and do your work we ask these things in the name of your son amen well this week we are welcoming a new year into our lives I've always enjoyed the first days of a brand new year. They seem so hopeful and so full of potential. There's something comforting about a blank slate, something uplifting, especially after the type of year that we have just had. And because of that hopeful and fresh start, I'm sure that some of you, like me, have made New Year's resolutions with the hope that this year will be different and better than last year because we will do better and be better than we did last year. I do this most Januaries. Most New Year's start off with some sort of New Year's resolution, though I don't have a great record of success. Several years ago, I told Jessica, my wife, that I wanted to buy a bike to ride to work every day. I was excited to keep track of the days that I rode to work and then to record the, the price of gas on the days that I rode to work so that I could calculate exactly how much money I was saving and so that I would know the exact day that my new bike paid for itself. So I bought the bike and I rode it to work that first day. And when I got home, I, I filled in that date and the price of gas on the spreadsheet that I had printed out and hung on the wall. A year later, when I finally took the spreadsheet down, it wasn't because I had finally saved enough money to pay for the bike. It was because there was only ever one line filled in, the one day that I actually rode my bike to work. And now, eight years later, Jessica still jokingly reminds me that I have a few more miles to go if I'm going to pay that bike off. Maybe you are better at resolutions than I am, but for most of us, February or March comes along and the wheels start to fall off. Maybe that's already happened by January 2nd, like it did for me. How many times have I heard people talk about how they started the year with a Bible reading plan, with the eager anticipation to see the Lord reveal himself in his word, only to have things fall apart by Valentine's Day? How many times have I heard students say, with utter sincerity and earnest desire, that they wanted to get their faith back on track, to deepen their relationship with God, only to fall back into old habits and stunted spiritual growth. We are not great at resolutions. And when it comes to spiritual matters, there's a good reason for that. The problem of our sin and our distance from God is not just a bad habit that we should try harder to break. It is, as Scripture describes it to us, a slavery that we just cannot break ourselves free from. But Scripture also affirms that we should keep trying. We ought to fight against the inward current pushing us toward sin and toward uh, the ungodliness that dwells in each of us, and instead set our sights on maturity in faith and obedience to God's Word. If there was ever a, be- a beginning of a new year that does not bring with it a renewed desire to deepen our joy and trust in the gospel and obedience to the word of Christ, if there is ever a dawn that comes of a new day that does not bring with it a fresh longing for God and for his comfort, then that is where we ought to start. That should be our first prayer, that God would do his work in us to make our hearts alive with a new resolve to grow in faith. It is right to begin a new year and every new day with a resolution to do better and to know God more, to obey his word more faithfully. And here, in this short passage from the book of 2 Thessalonians, we see that when it comes to resolutions to grow as followers of Christ, there is a right way to go about it. The Apostle Paul wrote this, his second letter to the church in Thessalonica, very early in his career as a missionary. After 1 Thessalonians, it is one of the earliest written books in the New Testament, while the Christian movement was just getting established. Paul had traveled to the city of Thessalonica very early on, shared the gospel with the people there, and planted a church that he cared deeply for. So when word reached him that the new Christians in this city were being brutally persecuted, he was deeply concerned for them. He wanted to encourage them, to press on, to keep standing for the gospel, and to keep seeking the Lord. He wanted to strengthen them as much as he could as their brother in Christ to run their race well, as he would describe the Christian life many years later. And this passage is part of that encouragement. He tells them that he and his fellow missionaries are always praying for them. By always, Paul evidently means that he is consistent in his concern for them and that there isn't a day that goes by without his lifting them up in prayer. We see this throughout Paul's letters, He was evidently a man of prayer, an abiding love for Christians in churches scattered all over. So, given the circumstances of the persecution that has sprung up in Thessalonica, this is Paul's natural response. I know people like that. Some of you are people that I would describe this way, people whose first and most natural language is not English or Spanish or Mandarin. It is the language of prayer. This Christmas, I was given a biography of the great British pastor Charles Spurgeon, and it describes him as a man of prayer. He wrote that at one point he was troubled by shallow prayers that he heard among Christians, noting, I can readily tell when a brother is praying or when he is only performing or playing at prayer. Oh, for a sincere groan. One sigh of the soul has more power in it than a half hour's recitation of pretty pious words. This, I think is something that Paul understood. Prayer is a disposition toward God, an ongoing plea for his intervention and mercy, uttered in the words of the soul, and in such prayer there is true power. Perhaps you hear that and you think that doesn't really describe you. If I'm honest, it does not really describe me. Instead, my habit, my instinct, is to jump into action. When something is wrong When Thessalonian Christians are being martyred and abused, my instinct is to act, to strategize, to think about how we could solve this problem. Paul's is to pray. That difference is important, and it shapes the way that Paul seeks to encourage these friends of his in their hardship, as we'll see in the lines that follow. He prays specifically for two things. First, for their worthiness, and second, for their resolve. He says, We always pray for you that God may make you worthy of his calling. This is the continual longing of Paul's heart that God would make them worthy of his calling. Scholars have wrestled with this line for 2,000 years, since it was first written. People have wondered what does Paul mean by worthy? Some argue that Paul hopes the Thessalonian believers will be built up, that they will be refined and made holy by God so that they are worthy to be called his children. Others say that the point here is that Paul hopes God will make their lives demonstrate the value of the God who is calling them. John Piper, the pastor and theologian, writing on this verse, argues that Paul hopes the Thessalonians will walk in a manner that shows the worth of the calling itself, not their worth. That they will walk in a way that calls attention to the calling, not to themselves. Both perspectives are helpful and probably have their merit. But we don't really have to choose one over the other to get at the main point that Paul is making here. He hopes that God will be the one at work in the lives of these people to transform them, to build them up, to sustain them, and to preserve them. We can know for certain that worthy, as Paul uses it here, does not mean deserving, because no one deserves God's call or a relationship with him. Paul makes that point very clearly throughout. All of his writing, declaring that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Paul sets his hope on God's intervention, not on their goodness. He knows that God is the one who has called them to faith. He knows that God has worked their salvation, and now he looks to God to continue what he has begun in them and will bring it to fulfillment. It's the same idea that characterizes his prayer for the uh, the, the church in Philippi in the opening lines of the book of Philippians when he told the believers there, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is this confidence that leads to Paul's second prayer that God may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith. He is hopeful that God will honor the longing that these friends of his already have to do good and to grow as Christians. It's a desire that he already knows is there. Throughout his two letters to the Thessalonian church, he has often expressed his joy that they are thriving in their faith and that they are steadfast under persecution. He told them directly earlier in the book of 2 Thessalonians, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. He knows them well. He knows their earnest desire is for the Lord, and he knows that that desire is there because God has put it in their hearts, so much so that he finds himself often telling other churches about the faith of these Thessalonian believers. And part of the reason Paul is so pleased has to do with the hardships that these Christians faced every day for their faith. Thessalonica was an important city. For several reasons. First, it played an important economic role. It was home to an important stop on a major overland trade route, as well as being a critical port city. Because of this, travelers and traders were constantly flowing in and out of the city, and part of the makeup of the city itself existed to serve the sinful desires of this transient population. It was also the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia, so it played a very important political role. And for the people in power in the city, it was important to keep the peace and not attract any unwanted Roman attention so that anyone disrupting that peace was quickly silenced. It was home to temples, many temples from various ancient Near Eastern religious systems, so it played a significant role in the culture of the area as people made their pilgrimages to the city throughout the year. Not only were all of these temples a valued part of city life, but their operation put money in the pockets of priests and merchants throughout the city. And it was home to more than 100,000 people. It was a mega city in the ancient world, so it was just a significant place in general. But all of those factors together put this fledgling Christian church in the city in danger. Acts chapter 17 records that during Paul's visit to the city, as people were coming to faith Others were rising in opposition. The author of Acts records that a mob formed, and they went looking for Paul and his companions. When they couldn't find him, they seized Paul's host, a man named Jason, and they dragged him through the city. They accused him of sedition and treason because this new religion said that Jesus was king, not Caesar. It isn't clear that they cared really all that much about Caesar's honor simply that they wanted a way to silence Jason and Paul and their fellow Christians. Every day that the Thessalonian believers lived in the city was a risk because many saw Christianity as a threat. A resolution to live for Christ was, therefore, something that set people apart. It isolated them in society and cut off opportunities that might otherwise have been open to them. It is not an overstatement to say that putting their faith in Christ was costly to them—socially, economically, politically, and often physically. They are living out the truth of Jesus' statement, that you will be hated on account of my name. It's something we may want to avoid facing, but the truth is that living for Christ and in obedience to his word will come at a cost. Yet these Thessalonian believers did. Day after day, they did endure. They looked to Christ. They determined to know him more and to honor him with their lives more. That is the background that informs how we will understand Paul's constant prayers for them. It's important that he doesn't tell them simply to be strong. That's the sort of encouragement we might expect because it's the sort of thing we often hear and tell one another. Rather than telling them to look inside themselves, to be true to themselves, to find comfort in their community, or to follow their hearts to the peace that they're looking for, he tells them that they will find it elsewhere. Instead of saying those things, he prays that God would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. The strength to succeed, to serve God amid such opposition, to treasure Christ when it, when it is costly to do so, to deepen their joy in the gospel, the strength to accomplish all of these things will not be their own. It will be God's moving in them. This is, I think, a better encouragement. Paul could have written a letter admonishing them to be tough, to buck up and stay strong. And elsewhere, he does do that kind of thing. He does give instruction for Christians who are growing in their faith and facing opposition. In fact, right here in chapter 3 of this book in 2 Thessalonians, uh, Paul will offer a strong indictment of some among the church in Thessalonica and how they ought to be conducting themselves. Elsewhere, he has written that we should walk in a manner worthy of God and, that, and to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Christians in Thessalonica and everywhere should desire that their lives would honor the God who has called them as his sons and daughters, and he will tell them, do not grow weary in doing good. We know that Scripture instructs believers to pursue righteousness, and that it is something we should strive for and resolve to attain. But what this passage here in 2 Thessalonians 2 helps us understand is that God is the one who will make that resolution become a reality. And that is a better encouragement. Because often, we give ourselves too much responsibility. We lay on our own shoulders the burden of spiritual growth, both in our own lives and in the lives of others that we pour into, whether they are our children, our friends, our coworkers, or whatever. We assume that if we don't do things just right, everything might fall apart. And conversely, that if we do get things just right, We will bring ourselves and others closer to God and into deeper and more lasting joy. But that way of thinking is flawed for one important reason. We are still full of pride, still flawed. And the bonds of our slavery to sin are constantly trying to wrap us up again. We give ourselves a responsibility to do what none of us is actually capable of doing. It's like demanding a goldfish to do my taxes. Now, that sounds silly, But it is no more ridiculous than assuming that any of us has the capacity to make ourselves into the godly people that we wish we are and that God calls us to be. So Paul does not tell them to summon their strength. He tells them that he is praying that God will give them his strength. It's a better encouragement because it sets its hope on God to do what only God can do and what he delights in doing. This passage affirms that we should make resolutions. We should set goals for our lives. Goals that, should we achieve them, will bring us closer to God. But if success hangs on our willpower, then we are constrained to the limits of our wills with all their delight and slavery to sin and pride. The fact is that our resolutions to read God's word more to pray more, to obey God's instruction more faithfully when they are rooted in our strength and our will will only ultimately drive us further from God because they will reinforce the notion that we are our own Savior. Paul's prayer is for their resolve, that they would truly seek the Lord, but his, and his hope is that they will be godly people, but his trust is in God's power to bring it about that example should be instructive to us both as we seek to do good and as we seek to love one another well. In our desire to grow spiritually and to come closer to God and to live more and more in accordance with his will, we ought to look to him as the one who can bring it about. We ought to pray as Paul does and as Charles Spurgeon did with hopeful anticipation and expectation that God will move. All our decisions And every resolve to do good should be rooted in a dependence on God. Just as we know that apart from God's plan of salvation, we cannot save ourselves, if we're honest, we know that it is not in us to conquer sin nor to atone for it. So we look to Christ, whose perfect life and atoning death are our justification. So too do we look to his spirit for our sanctification, which is just a fancy way of of being made into the godly people that we are called to be. And as we grow, we know that it is not our strength that has brought us here, but our God's strength, so that none of us has room to boast. Paul certainly understood that. He knew that this was God's work, not ours. And because of that, no Christian has room to brag. I remember years ago, uh, I got to hear a well-known pastor and author speak at a conference that I was attending. He had published dozens of books. He was invited to speak at important events all around the world and was well-respected among Christians worldwide. And during a question and answer time, someone asked him, with all your success and the acclaim that is often given to you, how do you stay humble? And I remember his answer. He said, well, humility is a funny thing. If I work hard to become humble, eventually I'll become proud of how humble I am. The point is not to look inward for what it takes to become humble, because that just puts me at the center of things, and that's the thing I'm trying to avoid doing. But instead, to behold our holy and eternal God. If I ever start to feel like a big shot, he said, I read Job or Genesis or the Psalms, and I suddenly feel as I really am, a man of dust who God mercifully cares for. He had no room to boast, and he knew it. He knew who he was. He knew that if he did any mighty things for the kingdom of God, it was not by his might, but by God's, because God is the only one with the right to boast. We see here in our passage in 2 Thessalonians, it is for the glory of God. Paul says that he is praying these things that God would make his friends worthy of their calling and fulfill their resolve to do good so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified in you. Ultimately, that is what's underneath all of Paul's instruction to Christians in all of the letters that he writes. The hope that by God's grace and power, God will bring his people to maturity and holiness so that his glory will be revealed. He will be shown to be the just and the justifier, the one who is righteous and who makes his people righteous. He will be shown to be holy and the one who makes his people holy. God had already given his people his law and the standard of righteousness and holiness that he called them to, and generation after generation proved that they were unable to keep it. And if we think we are any different, we need only look at a single day of our lives with honest eyes to see that we are just the same. Like the ancient Israelites, we may hold God's very word and instruction in our hands, and we will still fail to abide in it. But God can, and he does, and he delights to bring holiness about in his people. And as he does, it is his glory that is revealed, not ours. So Paul's encouragement to his friends in Thessalonica and to us is truly a comfort, a better encouragement, because we know that the burden is laid on God, the one with the power and the strength to carry it. But the final line of this passage shows us that there is even more to this promise. God works in his people, we read, so that Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean that believers will be glorified in Christ according to his grace? It is the final link in the the chain of the Christian life, according to Paul in Romans 8, where he writes that those whom he foreknew, he, God, also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined he called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. Christians are, as they resolve to do good and carry out works of faith, conformed to the image of Christ himself transformed by God's power into the likeness of Jesus himself so that one day when any of us looks at another or hears him speak or sees him act, we will see Christ in him. It will not result in our praise or in a claim laid at our feet, but in Christ's and in our joy at seeing it. So we might summarize Paul's whole point in this passage like this. It is the duty of every Christian to strive for righteousness by depending on God's power and awaiting the glory of Christ. But what does that look like, practically speaking? How can we act on that as we begin this new year together? Of course, there are lots of answers to that question. Many of them are things that we often think about as we start a new year. Things like reading the Bible more, spending more time in prayer, finding ways to serve in the church. But I would argue that these seemingly routine pursuits that we consider every January carry more weight this year than most. 2020 was an unprecedented year. I don't need to remind you of that. But it it forced us to do things differently in our workplaces, in our families, with our hobbies, our social lives, and definitely here at church. Here at Westgate, we are certainly very thankful for the expertise and the time and energy that allowed us to transition our Sunday morning worship service completely online for a portion of the year. And we are continually thankful for the effort that goes into providing that as a resource to families in the church who connect with us every week via live stream. It isn't the year that we thought we would have, and it certainly didn't look the way we thought it would. It isn't what most of us would prefer. But we are thankful for the people and the gifting that made it possible to implement such changes on such a short timetable. But one of the unintended effects of such changes is a subtle and unspoken notion that has worked its way into the global church more this year than any other. These changes and the year that we've had has made it easier to think of church and specifically our worship as something that we witness rather than something that we participate in. Virtual church is a wonderful tool, but we should be honest about the fact that it makes it easier to think of worship as a performance for which we are audience members. Please don't misunderstand my words here. There is no intended condemnation of any person or family in these words, just the observation that we ought to be vigilant and discerning about the effect that such a significant change in our religious practice can have on us if we are not paying attention. I will be the first to confess that while I was logged on at home when we could not meet in person, it was harder for me to engage in the same way with our congregational singing, our corporate prayers, and with the reading of God's Word. When my phone buzzed because I was sitting on my couch in my living room, my habit was to pick it up, and I had to remind myself that I was in church. There are things about it that were really nice, of course. But in subtle ways, I found that I was beginning to think of worship as a show that I watched rather than a genuine act in which I participated alongside my brothers and sisters. And that, that personal realization is really why I wanted to start the year thinking about resolutions and about seeking the Lord for the glory of Christ, because I need to recover from last year, and I'm guessing that many of you do as well. But what does that look like practically Well, first, as we've seen in 2 Thessalonians, it begins and is sustained by God-dependent prayer and petition. If we aim to do this thing by sheer force of will, we will flounder. Second, it is aimed at the hopeful expectation that God will reveal the glory of Christ and bring his people to his glory in his likeness. And third, it makes use of helpful tools. There are dozens of things we might highlight as the the useful tools that are available to us in our pursuit of the Lord. But one that I'd like to focus on briefly is what is known as a catechism. A catechism is simply a tool that has been used by Christians for millennia. It is basically a list of questions and answers that help equip believers with a solid foundation of Christian doctrine and theology. It challenges false and tempting notions about God, about humanity, and about our salvation, and reinforces the bedrock principles of biblical teaching. Catechisms can be very helpful, both for individuals and for families and communities. And so this year as a church, we as a church will be working through New City Catechism on Sunday mornings. The New City Catechism was published only a few years ago. And even though there are lots of other historic catechisms that we might have chosen to use, we chose this one because there are so many helpful resources that are available to work alongside it. There are apps for your phone, devotionals, and websites, and curricula, and flashcards, and all kinds of other things that have been made available. And our hope is that as we begin to incorporate this catechism into our corporate worship on Sunday mornings, that you and your family will have tools at your disposal to get even more out of it. Certainly, there are many other helpful tools available to us in our pursuit of the Lord. We live in an age when it has never been easier to make use of Bible reading plans that will walk us through God's Word. There are litanies of resources for daily Bible reading, for prayer and scripture memorization that I'm sure many of you know about already. There are tools that help develop godly habits, to organize family worship, to equip us to share our faith and to engage in discipleship and deepen our knowledge of theology. There are so many tools that we are tempted, often I think, to use them without pausing to reflect on how we ought to do so. This passage reminds us that we should seek the Lord. And second, that we should remember that God delights to make His people worthy of His calling by His power and for the glory of His Son. It is good for us to be intentional and disciplined and purposeful as we look at the year ahead of us. I hope that you are optimistic about 2021, that it will be better than the year we've just left behind, and that it will see us become the godly men and women that we have been called to be. But as we make our resolutions... And as we set our sights on the duty of our calling to seek the Lord, let us be careful to not give ourselves a responsibility that we are not strong enough to bear. Instead, let us look to God for strength to persevere amid the costly nature of seeking him and serving him in a world that has rejected him and set our hope on the grace, on his grace to bring about the, the desire that he has for all who call him Lord to be made into the glorious likeness of his son. Would you pray with me? Lord, today, we are grateful for your word. We praise you, our holy God, who has revealed your will and your attributes and your love for your church in the words of Scripture. And we are thankful for the ways that you speak to us today through books like 2 Thessalonians. As we begin this new year, instruct us in the way that we ought to go, guide us in obedience, and by your Spirit, give us joy to follow where you lead. In your grace, make this a year in which we flourish, both individually and as a church family, in matters of faith and righteousness. We trust in your strength, Lord, to bring about what you desire in us. We ask that you would do your work in our lives, and we bring all this to you in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Now, as we respond to the encouragement that God desires to be at work in us for our good and his glory, let us respond by standing to sing, O church, arise. In Ephesians 6, Paul closed his letter to the church by telling them, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. As we sing this morning, Let us seek the Lord's strength to persevere and to praise him for providing all that we need to carry on and flourish amid bitter hardship.